0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes.
1: I don't know which staunchy you guys you've had in here that said it's difficult. It's not. Anyone can do this immediately. Get here right now and get on the microphone. You'll make millions of dollars.
0: Look, baby! Very bad Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, thanks to a brand new Twitter account that just popped up, we're probably both about to lose our jobs. What are you going to do with your life
1: after academia? <laughs> it's true. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. <laughs> for now. we've For for now. We talked about how we have no marketable skills. I I think my daughter is... Almost twelve, maybe I, you know, find some job that is able to exploit her at a young age and have her, you know, like ch- child star. Can can I just beauty, do beauty like a beauty Should contest? <laughs> yeah, or or like you know, get her on get, that circuit, turn her into an athlete, and just be like, a, you know, hardcore father that just
0: <laughs> yeah, one of those like tennis fathers. That's yeah. I tried to be with my daughter, and this just... but she was. T- She sucks.
1: I know. When can can you get social security?
0: You could probably get it. I I think even if this, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to make movies. This is.
1: You already do, my friend. You already do.
0: That's true.
1: (laughs) But yeah, this new Twitter account is exactly the thing that when we were deciding whether or not it's called VBW, no context. And (laughs) I don't know who started it. (laughs) <laughs> i don't either but it's pretty brilliant you should follow it V B W underscore no underscore contact um unless exact- you're a university administrator unless you're uh, it's exactly what i was afraid of when we started this uh, you know
0: th- so yeah it just takes quotes out of context actually the first quote it took was not one of ours it was from yoel and no. i remember when i was editing this line i was laughing uh, and I wish I, I, I remember thinking, I wish I had noticed that he'd said that in the podcast, uh, but <laughs> you don't listen it was that when much. you, we were talking about the scene in force majeure where it was just this rave of all <laughs> yeah. guys and, and we're, and, and this guy's just swept up and they're all, uh, and into this rave with this crazy house music and everyone's taking off their shirt and you said something like, I, th- I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it's like a gay thing, maybe, and, yeah, because
1: it was all dudes with their shirts off, and it was really confusing to me. And uh, Yoel said,
0: "I don't think it was gay; it was just European." <laughs> and he said it not like as a not as a joke. He said it like totally seriously, just to explain <laughs> to you
1: what it was. Right, he right. Lived no, in no, Europe no, yeah, long it time. wasn't. It wasn't. Chic. <laughs> so I have to recount this story. Okay, so Yoel, after we recorded that episode, Yoel ha- happened to be to come out to to Ithaca. You all wanted to go to this dive bar. Uh, you all was a grad student here. at how I know him. And uh, he wanted to go to this favorite dive bar that I never go to because I don't really care that much for dive bars. And I don't go out anyway because I don't have anybody to go out with. But we go out and sort of randomly there was a, a young woman in, in the bar who, who started talking to him. And we ended up actually sitting down and speaking to his, his two women and, and a guy. Um, so the five of us were talking, and like literally an hour later, something—I don't know how it came up—but the woman who had started talking to us said, "said to you, wait, you're not gay," <laughs> and <laughs> and he, he, no, I think it was to me first. She said, "You're not gay," and I said, "No," and so then it kind of took her a, a second. She thought you and I were a couple, and then, but in her mind. Okay, she had finally resolved that I wasn't gay, but surely Yoel was. So, like five minutes later, he says something, and she's like, "Wait, you're also not gay." <laughs> so.
0: In her defense, she did see you guys making out by the bathroom door. It's not like it's not gay. That's, that's not no. I know that's loving friendship. <laughs> Speaking of friendship, one of the great virtues that Aristotle talks about today, we we're gonna talk about an interview with, with Nancy Sherman that comes from the new book, but. Specifically about the Aristotelian and Stoic views of developing
1: good character and living a good life. And don't be shy. Say it's you said the book. So you could say it's your book. Okay. We
0: Before we get to our main topic today, we want to put out a request for ideas for our hundredth episode. We don't have yet. We haven't decided on an idea for our 100th episode, and we'd like to do something somewhat special. We want to do something that we'll love, the listeners will love, sort of celebrating the ridiculousness of us doing 100
1: of these episodes. It, it, it could be requesting some somebody, but it doesn't have to be. Like you know, There's all sorts of things we could do. It's going to be our plat- platinum. Is that what it is? Is that what 100th is? I don't think so. I think a hundredth your hundredth anniversaries. No, I don't think people get there. Nobody's be married been married for a hundred years, probably. Right? <clears throat> Only in Bible times when yes, they lived, right. like nine hundred.
0: Sarah and Abraham. Um, Speaking of the yeah. Bible, you're going to the land of Abraham. Oh. I'm going
1: to the cradle of Abrahamic faiths. Yes, <laughs> the, uh, you're going to the, Israel. Yeah. In, in fact, that's why my... we're recording We're recording a bit early, so this is going to be—there there might be a lot that happens between now and when we release this, but I, I'm going for a week to Israel to present at a conference and hopefully to walk around the land that Jesus walked. Jesus <laughs> and other Jews. <laughs> <laughs> in that, I, I rank them in order of importance. <laughs> Richard Feynman, and then Jesus, and then... Hold on. <laughs> is it a conference? What is it exactly that you're yeah. doing? <clears throat> it's a conference at Herzliya at the IDC on unethical behavior and more morality. Uh, Molly Crockett, former Very Bad Wizards guest, will be there. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So while you guys are thinking about uh, ep- ideas for our 100th episode, you can tell us about those ideas by emailing us, verybadwizards at gmail.com, or tweeting to us at verybadwizards at tamler at peas. And while you're at it, you can also rate us on iTunes, leave us a review that helps other people uh, find the podcast. So please continue that. There are other ways in which you can support us. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters, www.patreon.com slash verybadwizards. Um, You can become our Patreon supporter, and we have some goodies for you if you do. Speaking of which, the next newsletter... By the time you hear this, it should be out. Yep. Right. And uh, you can go to verybadwizards.com slash support to support us in other ways. But thank you to everybody. The Amazon click-throughs, those are great. Um, They continue to put food in our mouths symbolically. Sometimes, literally. So thank you. So one of the things I wanted to say is um, I, I mentioned it doesn't have to be, you know, like you don't have to request a philosopher or psychologist for the 100th episode. You can be creative. Give us ideas. We have like this, these wet dreams of having Charlie Booker from uh, the creator of, of, um. Black Mirror. Which Or recently, Tambler, you suggested Sammy Smith creator of Mr. Robot. Um. That would Anybody? be so
0: cool. And, you know, he does the whole circuit of podcasts, but, you know, he's in high demand. Yeah. But, you know, Mr. Robot is coming back on season two, about to get going again. Very excited for that. Watching it with the whole family. Now, I, must, I almost one. have to
1: pee when I think about it. You know, when you get excited and you kind of have to pee a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking about that. Makes me... But we would
0: love to have him on. I have, There's so many. The show is so great. I'm now watching it. All the way through again, for the third time, and the more you watch it, the more you appreciate the filmmaking like i don 't understand how, how does he become all of a sudden such an incredible filmmaker like how does he how does he craft shots in such an original interesting way? when he had directed one movie or
1: something in his whole life and <laughs> no tea, like, where did I, you know what he's, he's like, uh, he's like Emmanuel Kant who wrote the critique of pure reason when he was 50. Um, he's, 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 he's like he me d- after I get d- fired from <laughs> university of Houston because of this new account, something woke him from his dogmatic slumber. Yeah. And he made Mr. Robot. <laughs> By the way, that's the picture of Kant That is the, uh, the picture to the
0: Twitter <laughs> so far. They haven't quoted me yet. And I think that's because I never say anything even remotely offensive. Well,
1: I at first I thought that it it's because it was you. I was like, Oh man, this is another, you know what? I'm sick of that. Here's the thing. <laughs> I have one Twitter
0: account. That's my Twitter account at Tamler. That is my Twitter account. I don't start Accounts for my dog, I don't start accounts f- but you also tweet from that very bad Wizards.
1: spooy so do you you know
0: I know, but I'm not the one yelling
1: that I only have one Twitter account well that's because people
0: <laughs> I, uh, people thought that the same thing about Tamler's dog like imagine the arrogance of somebody starting a Twitter account for his own and, dog and that's what
1: people are imagining that's I why, know that's why you're so- that but it, <laughs> it's deeply hurtful <laughs> I actually have multiple Twitter's accounts. Uh, tw- twitters yeah, Twitter accounts that I imagine the real shack i am uh <laughs> <laughs> um, the
0: real donald trump yeah <laughs> did you um, tweet out was it you that tweeted out that jewish star with the like <laughs> the hillary is the most crooked candidate ever thing no
1: i i just vehemently defended it in an angry <laughs> uh, angry tweet. no no but jesus christ i know jesus we God haven't even God. talked about that really but at some point maybe will. <sighs> i know i you know part I got to say, part of if, – if some of you think, like, maybe we don't talk about some of the shit that's going on, part of the reason is – well, there's two reasons I have. One is shit gets me really upset, and I don't like to talk about it, um, it not in this venue. And two is I've always wanted these podcasts to be, with some exception, I guess, to, to be listenable, like, way after shit has happened and not get dated. Right. Um, God damn it if this year hasn't been a motherfucker for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And, like, we've just steadily avoided talking about a whole bunch of shit. But uh, it's to, to keep from cr- For me, it's a lot of times to keep from crying. So, But if it comes up, it comes up. comes up. Um, so if you know anybody, you guys know what makes us excited sexually um, when it comes to talking about topics on this show. So if you know anybody famous who you think would love to be on <laughs> a Very Bad
0: Wizards special. Are you talking about, like,
1: porn stars? <laughs> No, not even porn stars. I don't know those names. Your browser go. history suggests My- other. Ones.
0: <laughs> By the way, there is such a thing as private browsers. You should look into that.
1: Man, I've been knowing about private browsers.
0: Um, <laughs> Spread the word, a very bad wizard. We don't funny-
1: even have a Wikipedia page. I, you know, I don't want to say anything, but like, come <laughs> we're, on, we're, how are people going to know? I feel like we're not even, we don't even really exist
0: until Don't we have- beg for a Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> we're plummeting on the, here's something I'll beg for though. We're plummeting on the <laughs> iTunes rankings.
1: We're not plummeting. But. So Tamler is going to start an official very, get very bad wizards a Wikipedia page Twitter account, <laughs> and uh, he'll be tweeting self promotional shit. Speaking of that's self-promotional- been more your thing. <laughs> Speaking of self promotional shit, uh, today we're discussing your book, but yeah. I will defend I will defend your poor character till my dying breath by saying that this is actually a great great start off for a discussion um i did this is when i reread it as i said um this quote chapter unquote, reread quote unquote this interview that you did with nancy sherman who is a philosopher from georgetown university she's still at georgetown yes yeah i liked it even better the second time
0: well, i'll post a i will post I guess like the penultimate draft of the interview you know the final draft but not like the book version on our website oh, and on Facebook. It. I'll just I'll put it out there in case you want to you want to read it, it. I'll
1: put it on the pirate bay.
0: But of course, if you haven't bought the book and you like this interview and you like our conversations, maybe think of buying buying the book. It's one of my favorite interviews from the new edition, if not my favorite. It delves into most of the things I would say that I'm interested in right now. Ancient ethics, The connection between emotion and morality, virtue, character, and the role of luck in living good and moral lives. And Nancy Sherman herself is a really interesting philosopher, as you said, a professor at Georgetown. She also taught at the Naval Academy. She's an Aristotle scholar and turned a little later in her career to study Stoicism, in part because of her work at the Naval Academy.
1: That was actually really fascinating.
0: Yeah, that that was yeah. what led her. What, what's cool about her is this isn't just a scholarly pursuit. She's published a ton of books, ton of articles, but it's not just a scholarly pursuit for her. She's the daughter of a World War II veteran. She's had a long-running interest in the life of the military and she works closely, even now, with soldiers. She exposes soldiers and military officials to the ideas of Aristotle and also the Stoics. Her last three books are on the relevance of these ideas to people in the military today.
1: She was invited to go to the, to the Naval Academy because they were, they were having a, a, a cheating scandal. And, um, right. you know, for all those who who, who think that—, that philosophers can't get their hands dirty in the real world. Like that's a cool thing, man, to just go go to the Naval Academy just to try to figure out what's going on with these these cheaters. Um, and
0: and even and now lie. working with soldiers who have PTSD, trying to help them, trying to negotiate the relationship between civilians and the military once they get back from war. This is something she's written about. Yeah, no, I, I, this is kind of a model of what philosophy would hopefully be doing
1: yeah and if it's a broad theme i think as i wrote about of the book there is this broad theme um i think that it just illustrated really well that it's not that you can't generalize and abstract it's that it'll be much better when you start with real people in real situations because That is the thing that you are trying to understand and explain. Um, So that it doesn't get completely
0: untethered from human life. She says that's something that Aristotle understood. He understood. That's right.
1: The sad truth of the matter is that when the way that I fell into learning philosophy was very much through the ethics of the 20th century— it's but,
0: it's very systematic it's very abstract it's very and, it's very and, focused and on that, cases that have nothing to do with the real world
1: right or when they do they're still narrow right i don't want to say that it's not that it's not applicable there are you know there's there's good literature i think in applied ethics on abortion and all those things right like the, but, but like the
0: cases you know if you look at the f- most famous abortion essay the case that she's dealing with <laughs> It's not a case of a woman who's had an abortion or who didn't have an abortion. It's a case of a violinist (laughs) attached to a woman for nine months after she's been kidnapped. And that's like the most realistic one in the essay. You know, later there's people pods growing on the rug. And I'm reminded by what you just said. Opening topic I wanted to ask about, which I think is diagnostic of this disconnect between the ancient ethics and the more modern approach. The modern approach, whether it's utilitarian or Kantian, is very focused on impartiality. That is taken as the overriding, the guiding sort of idea behind ethics is that it has to be impartial. And Nancy Sherman says, and I asked her about this in the interview, that this idea, this focus on impartiality is absent in most of ancient ethics, maybe until the Stoics. She says with Aristotle, he thinks ethics has to be deeply rooted in real relationships, relationships that you have with
1: other people that have some history. Okay, and, but help but help me out then because yeah. some of my— earliest like what what really got me super interested in philosophy of ethics was the first time i read plato just in high school checking out like the republic and that seems like it's the just the kind of philosophy that we do like that is pretty impersonal right like yeah so i was thinking about that but but i
0: wonder how much of it we sort of how much of this commitment to impartiality we we project on to Plato. So when he's talking about what is justice, for example, right. It the, ends up the, being very focused on the city, right? The polis. I mean, the polis, so, but but not like it is for Aristotle for sure. And yeah, no, that's a good question and it's probably something that I should have asked her in this uh, <laughs> you know, interview uh, that I'm otherwise proud of. Like, yeah, so here's a quote. Did. She says, Aristotle didn't think much at all about a cosmopolitan sensibility, this idea of being a citizen of the universe. That comes later. So she's saying it comes later than Aristotle. Right. For right. Aristotle, what matters is being a citizen in an, om- in an almost face-to-face community. As a result, his philosophy tends to praise benevolent deeds, not to strangers, not in far-flung altruistic actions, but within friendships, for example. Now, as much as Plato has his abstract and systematic side, you don't see that kind of cosmopolitan idea in Plato, right? The citizen of the universe idea. There's nothing in Plato that would lead someone to think that he would be in favor of effective altruism. This idea that you right. should act to do the most good in the world, right. so it's the moral circle, yeah, right. So that so that idea isn't in Plato, it's, and it's definitely not in Aristotle. Right? He really does think er, uh, ethics is grounded in being part of your community and in your
1: relationships. Right. So there's this great there's this great part of the interview <laughs> where. Uh... Aristotle's focus on being a citizen in a face to face community, and that he he was dissing Plato for that the diluted friendships <laughs> His dilute his watery yeah. you can't have too many friendships, which is an interesting idea it's not that it's it's that quantity affects quality you can't have too many friendships because because each would get quote unquote watery. Deluded, if you did. That's literally his word in the politics. He even criticizes Plato for having watery kinds of friendships that would, on Plato's view, count as replacements for the family. So, how did that uh, make you feel? I that, had that this down
0: too, as I, someone who yeah. is friends with everybody.
1: Oh, dude, I felt per I, I was like oh, personally I totally have water. I mean, it's I I felt like it was absolutely the the kind of indictment that I should be sensitive to. I mean. <clears throat> I, on the one hand, I think that that there is some virtue in having minimal friendships with people all over. But you know, I do fear that we've sacri- we sacrifice the amount of time. I mean, we are now living in a world where we move around like we're not around. I'm I'm lucky to have friends that I've had since since I was nine years old, um, right. and they're some of my best friends. But you don't live in the same city as them. You don't live in the same city, and it's increasingly difficult. At the same time, it's increasingly easy to make watery friends, right? Like the people we met at the bar the other night. We can be Facebook friends and say happy birthday once a year and, you know, say congratulations, you had a baby or whatever. Is it mine? Are are you sure it's not mine? Um. (laughs) (laughs) I have a serious thing to say
0: right now or a serious question. Is our friendship watery?
1: (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. Uh, But no, I would say our, our friendship was once watery. Now it's just really buttery buttery and, uh, I like this <laughs> slippery and yeah it's like uh grits. greasy it's like grits that's a
0: good kind of friendship no I, I think I don't know I've become more sensitive to this as I've gotten older and I also have a bunch of friends from high school we still get to see each other maybe once a year we try to do a trip or we try to do something I enjoy those so much and then I just think and, and even with just my brother he comes over and watches a game like a pay game, maybe on Thanksgiving, or maybe he'll come to visit Eliza every so often. And it's like the best, it's like the best feeling ever. It's like, why don't I live near any of, I don't live near I any know. of them. I, like, not don't a I single have a friend, priority? not a single family member, except my immediate family. Yeah,
1: yeah I'm, I'm truly a citizen of the world in right. a bad way. Um, you have like uh, a, like a like over a thousand Facebook friends, right? Yeah, and like nobody to hang out with. <laughs> it's sad. It's like sad. Oh. There is something about people knowing who you are, where you came from. Yeah. Like you can't hide anything. You can't front. You can't. You you know. You can't put on airs. You can't. You can't do shit. Like like. And you can't get away with much. shit, right? Like
0: this <laughs> yeah. is something. in in the interview, but that she says is that friends having friends near you that call you out on your bullshit is an important way to know when you're uh, reacting emotionally in a proper way or reacting emotionally in an improper way the people who know you, and we talked about this a little with Valerie a little too. Exactly. But I was yeah. about to
1: say without, yeah. like that's, yeah. it, that was one of the points that came up, like without, without friends to, to calibrate you, to be, to be willing to sort of tell you when you've done something wrong without being, without feeling like Twitter condemned or Twitter shamed, right? Like that doesn't yeah. really have an effect. Right. But if, but if a friend comes up to you that you respect, even just a, any aspect of character, like growth, like it, yeah. it really happens within the context of good relationships because it's too easy to brush off what somebody says if you don't care. Wasn't this what women. I was saying with Jennifer Jacquet that like you
0: don't care and you guys like attacked me and said I was some sort of strange alien creature that didn't care what anonymous people said on Twitter and now you're saying the exact same thing?
1: No, no, no. I'm saying <laughs> it's so perfectly defensive of you to like find the um, – <laughs> I, I think that being shamed by strangers – can regulate your behavior, but it wouldn't have that character. Impact. Building. But your point is actually good. I, don't, I actually take it, I take back my initial criticism because that is, it is a good, it, it is a good point that you're making. I think that it's not something we just, dis, even, I even thought to distinguish at that point. Like, I don't think, I don't think my character is improved by my online watery friendships. Yeah. Um, but my behavior might be put in check, especially my public behavior. You know? But i but not necessarily in good ways. Yeah, may, maybe not.
0: But and that's yeah. the, like, I think your friends, because you feel it more deeply, that's probably, and this is Aristotle's point, that's how you build a better, a better character. Before we leave this issue of impartiality, though, so the fact that our friendships have become so watery and that we have way more of these friends from all, you know, like so many of my Facebook friends I've never met, you know, yeah. and some of them, I, I like, I don't know who they are. Like, we had a bunch of friends in common? Sure, right?
1: Right. It's almost the only check I use now, Like, or <laughs> else it's suspicious.
0: Or, yeah, exactly. So, there, there's a few that are just like Jesse Baring. So, my question is... <laughs> watery motherfucker that he is. <laughs> do you think that the fact that this this is not just us, this is everybody, right? Has this led to popularity of a movement like effective altruism and maybe greater adherence to the impartiality of theories like utilitarianism and also Kantianism, although, as Sherman points out, in some ways
1: utilitarianism is a lot more – is more impartial than Kantianism, right? Right, right. She points, she makes the distinction between impartiality and impersonal. Yeah. Um, and she says Kantianism may be impartial, but it's not impersonal, which I think is just right. You have duties and obligations, special people in your life um, yeah. that that are special because of your relationship, but it's well, still impartial. Yeah,
0: this, I had to censor out a lot of her pro-Kant propaganda,
1: <laughs> but Kant
0: doesn't it's not because you're friends with the person or because you knew them growing up that you have special obligations. It's because you made a promise or they're another rational agent or... So I don't see Kant as being a paradigm example, but at least he does recognize that you have special obligations to people and that they're not just utility vessels, as, as, as Sherman puts it. And so I wonder if the fact that we've grown less connected with people in a deep way, more connected with people in more superficial ways, if that makes utilitarianism and some of the associated movements more attractive or plausible, does that make them seem more plausible?
1: I actually think the same mechanisms that allow us to have an, a, a relationship, as watery as it might be, with somebody, you know, thousand miles away that we met once are the same mechanisms that allow us to choose to distribute our dollars to save people a thousand miles away that we've never met? Those mechanisms like the you know rapid increases in technology and ability to communicate and efficiencies of all sorts are a, they're, they are value free, right It may may be that they erode our natural sort of the, the happiness that we might get from deep friendships. but as far as I'm concerned, they unlock the ability to help people who really need help. Singer
0: wrote, "All you can find pretty much all the ideas of effective altruism in the 1971 paper, Famine, Affluence, and Morality.
1: Yeah, let's just, can you just say really quickly what it is? Because people might, it's sort of a catch. It's like we've a,
0: talked about it a lot on this yeah. podcast, but it's, it's this view that you ought to act in a way that will, Produce the most good or prevent the most suffering. You know, in 1971, Singer had this paper that, that that suggested that we were all living deeply immoral lives because, you know, look, we, we go out, we spend hundreds of dollars on a dinner when that money could maybe save a life. And we send our children to private schools when that money could educate 200 children in another country, and we act in ways that are very inefficient if our goal was to prevent the suffering that occurs regularly in the world. You know, even then, th- there were mechanisms that were in place to do the basics of that and people were more against it. And now you find a lot of people, you know, you find this, this guy who wrote the book on effective altruism, who quit his job, his job as a philosopher to become a banker so that he could commit so that, cause he could make more money and that would do more good for the world. Like now I wonder if it's more ingrained in the common consciousness that, ethics isn't as connected
1: to the personal yeah my intuition and this is you know just off the seat of my pants is that it is not causally related in that sense in that it's not that my relationships are watery that now i'm okay clicking you know a donate button for a dollar to you know sub-saharan kids it's just the same thing has caused both things to happen right now now I can click buttons and find out – I can be a Facebook friend with somebody I just met at a bar, and I can donate to, to a charity. And both of those actually – there are, I think, consequences to our psychology in one domain, our friendship, special relationships, and in another domain, which is how we view charity.
0: That, the reason I don't totally buy that is because while there wasn't the internet, a lot of these things were in place – Back in the 70s, it's not – you couldn't click a button, but you could write a check in response to
1: direct mail. You could watch Sally Struthers. Yeah, you're right. But I think that one of the things that's happened with the advent of the internet and the access to information is that now we can actually check to see whether the Sally Struthers thing was working it's right and now. Or, yeah, yeah. And I, I think people actually though are still pretty skeptical of the whole effective altruism movement. I think people want their charity to be personal. I actually think. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and this that's a good what, point. This is something that my grad student, uh, Lance Bush, um, is is interested in, and we're trying to do some studies on it. I, I, I think that what you have is that people might be really kind of skeptical about that style of charitable motivation, that, that if you turned it into an algorithm and, you know, if I get $100 withdrawn every month um, through some service that donates portions of a penny to a variety of charities, you know, there are a lot of things that both make it seem more heartless or less concerned or less motivated by empathy, like all signals that you would maybe not trust somebody to, to, you know, all of the kinds of character cues that Aristotle is talking about that, that, that you would have in a friendship, that loyalty, that empathy kinds of stuff that Paul Bloom hates. Right.
0: (laughs) Well, right. I mean, I think that's a very deep, disconnect right there, and I think it's the disconnect between an act-based approach to ethics and a, and a and a character-based approach to ethics. If you look at it from the point of view of just the action, well, this action will bring about the most good or prevent the most suffering, then it just seems completely plausible that that's the thing that you ought to do. Why bring about Less good when you could bring about more good. Right. But when you look at it, take the lens back a little bit, not just an act, but an act that is part of a larger person and a part of a larger life, then there are going to be those kinds of questions. Well, why didn't you, you know, give that money when, you know, like GoFundMe for right. your friend when your friend's dog was was sick and had cancer, you know, or right. something like that, which is definitely not the most
1: uh, It's not the most effective, right? Not what, you know what what do you do? You know this this happened yeah. this happened recently to me where I mean it was this very concern that I had um, where my daughter's dog, whom she loves, and and her, my baby mama, both you know, he's like literally <laughs> baby mama, baby mama. <laughs> like this dog is literally... I love how you just said that as if like that's how you talk. <laughs> so it is. Like, it's the most apt <laughs> description. She's my friend and all, but like that describes her. Um, you know her, and like this dog. I don't. I'm preaching to the choir here, but like this dog has like probably been responsible for getting. Judith, my ex, like through some of the hardest times in her life, like he's been a source of support and they love it. And it got hit by a train and had its leg cut off and they didn't have enough money to do surgery. And so one of her friends started a GoFundMe account. You kindly donated a bunch of people I know donated. But I, I, for the life of me, it was hard for me to post it like an ask because it just seemed miscalibrated to like post on Facebook to the thousand people that I might, you know, who's like three of whom might have just lost a relative to cancer. And it just seemed uh, like never it, mind just like kids who need mosquito nets. <laughs> never mind mosquito like a, right. exactly. Never mind like the ten dollars that could actually save like, uh you know, like a whole family's life over like a 20 year period by not getting malaria.
0: I mean, I and think I, that's that That right there is a great puzzle for people is like, do you do that? I love and, dogs, but there's no way the, the amount of money that everybody very kindly donated to your—and and probably out of relationships that they had and that's both the to thing, you and, like, and to and to her, like, there's no way that prevented the most amount of suffering in the no, world. No,
1: it's the most ineffective altruism.
0: Right. But, you but, know,
1: goddammit, was my, like, heart not just, like— wide open with yeah. like the kindness of like the people I knew and even the people I didn't know that well. Right. I don't want, I don't, you Would know, you want people not to do that. Would you want like, no, you know, yeah. there, there's a, I'm quoting a rabbi and, and you correct me because I don't know my rabbis, right. There, God is in two places. He's in heaven, but he's in every act of human kindness. Right. right. And I feel as if, yeah, sure. It's an act of human kindness to find the most efficient, um, effective, charity to donate to i mean that there is nothing not kind about that i mean in terms of 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 the result but there is something that is truly inspiring and sort of character building and just brings happiness to life when you have the interpersonal and builds um, relationships and (laughs) like solidifies yeah if you had to pick one thing that like makes Lives just descriptively, just as an empirical fact. What makes people actually happy in life? It is having those relationships. It's and, not, and
0: happy in the deep sense, not in the, in the right, the, not, yeah, not,
1: not in the like, in the euda-
0: eudaimonia sense. Right? You know? Yeah. She says that's sort of the Achilles' heel of utilitarianism is that it and and you know of course Bernard Williams devoted yeah. like, uh, like too much of his career to to making this point. That's something that's just invisible to utilitarianism.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And at the same time, though this this point that that we're making right now does does not defeat, I think, util, you know the right. the real utilitarianism. All right, let's let's take a quick break and then, but but
0: let's talk about the connection between emotions and morality.
1: Uh, sounds good.
0: Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're talking about the interview I did with Nancy Sherman in the new edition of A Very Bad Wizard, Morality Behind the Curtain, forward by Dave Pizarro. Was that the best, most effective use of your time, (laughs) writing that forward for me?
1: Um, Do I get points on the... On the back end. So
0: do we we work that out? It buttered up our friendship, for sure. (laughs) It made Uh, it nice and greasy. We were talking about Aristotle's unconcern with impartiality as part of um, living a moral and good life. He also had very distinct views on the connection between emotions and ethics. And this kind of maps on a little bit to our previous discussion. Um, so there's one view that Sherman says that people have about the emotions, which is that they're missed on our windshield. They're like distortions. They get in the way of seeing the world morally as we should, seeing the world rationally. I would say that right now Singer certainly has that view that our emotions are the main thing that prevent us from understanding the truth of utilitarianism and mm-hmm. the impartiality Principle, I, but I think you know, to a lesser extent, but to a significant extent, Paul Bloom has this view of emotions as well that they are this distorting element. They they're mist. They they cloud up the world. Aristotle had the idea that our emotions you can't under, you can't perceive the world properly without your emotions. So for Aristotle, emotions were like our, our GPS, right? He thinks, right. this is a quote from the interview, Aristotle believed that you can't really navigate in your world morally unless you have fine emotions that are picking up relevant information. And, I, and she says, I think that's an incredibly important part of moral growth and moral education. And that what well-tuned emotions do is give us moral street smarts. And Even though it's like character-based, like part of developing a good character is to develop these finely tuned emotions. It also helps us do the right thing in all the various diversity of situations that we find ourselves in.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things I wanted to say about this discussion because I think that Sherman does um, wisely rejects a bit of the dichotomy <clears throat> between emotion and cognition. In, right. in a In a really important way, which is that I don 't think that Peter Singer, let alone Paul, uh, who's a psychologist, would actually um, have any argument with with the the claim that emotions motivate and that emotions even serve this function of you know of of sort of alerting you to things in in the environment that that you ought to be worried about. Um, what they would they would just say is, oh, well, but reason has to calibrate them and you can <clears throat> you can get to some form of uh, charitable motivation without going through something like empathy. But they probably like Paul's the subtitle of his book is, is has the word compassion, which you could easily say is some sort of a. um you know, emotional or at least not cold. Yeah, but um,
0: Paul is not defending an Aristotelian view. No, no, uh,
1: no, he's not. But but I don't know. And I mean,
0: Singer I, is actually. I think you, I think you're right about Paul, wrong about Singer. This came out in the interview I did. He used to be a Humean, thinking that ultimately our emotions and Paul and, and Paul also. I asked him about this, and he says, "Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I'm a Humean. I think if we don't have." you know if we don't have the emotions we can't care about anybody's welfare at all so like ultimately it has to start there singer doesn't believe that singer used to believe that but now thinks that this is something we can that we come to through our reason just, and and yeah. we 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 just reason our way towards that view and he really does see the emotions as if if they if they
1: come on the right view, it's accidental, you know. Yeah. I, I like I'm certainly not going to defend Singer's view like I, I have to believe that it's some sense like and I think he just avoids talking about like what's the may, maybe to too abstract question of what's to get you to even care to apply your reason, right? What's, no, he doesn't. Like yeah, he just as
0: it. as you'll remember in yeah. the interview, he doesn't avoid it, but he doesn't satisfactorily answer it. He doesn't. Either. Satisfy, yeah.
1: yeah. um, um I think that part of the problem and maybe maybe one of the the things that we could press Paul on when you take this character approach it it isn't just about it's it's more than just moving from an act to a person it's actually moving to a person over time yeah, and I life. think that uh, you know having written a paper with Paul where we made this argument Um, you know I don't think Paul would stray too much from this notion that when you do that what reason is doing is is and what education is doing is training the the emotional system in a way that actually I think this interview with Sherman made salient to me like when she says uh, there is a quote here where she says, well, just to be clear, it's not only the emotions that distort. Beliefs can distort as well and lead to all sorts of prejudice. Right. Really what's going on is that any uh, – your your beliefs, your emotions, and whatever we call all of those in-between things can, need to be trained. And the way in which they're trained is through through education and through experience in the world. And just like you can have the wrong – epistemic beliefs you can have the wrong emotional reactions and it's not to me it's it's sort of a if once you move beyond that dichotomy you realize well yeah like you could believe the wrong kind of shit and you could actually also feel too much anger right right you know
0: Although we talk about it a little bit, but she resists this distinction between, you know, our emotion-based judgments and our cognitive-based judgments. They all sort of bleed in
1: together and yeah. emotions. It's one of the biggest roadblocks in our understanding of the human mind is, is exactly how appealing this dichotomy has been. Yeah. It's not just baggage from whatever Kant and Hume. It actually is a really appealing way to divide up our mental life and and i think that our lay theories of what emotion is and what thought is are just they fuck up our understanding of all sorts of things well as you said i think on a way back i
0: don't know why i remember this but i thought it was really kind of profound (laughs) <laughs> the this idea of dividing so everything up right into now. two, like <laughs> yeah, right. there's reason yeah. judgments and then there's emotional judgments, and there's no there's no gray between those, and there's no third thing. There's no we, we want to divide things up into pairs that oppose each other, and I'm sure yeah. that has you know yeah. Like,
1: I, I, this was actually I remember now it was uh there was an edge dot org. Um, uh, John Brockman's website where a lot of people contribute uh, to a yearly question. There's a yearly question. He solicits answers. One of them was, what is a, what's an idea that we have to get rid of? And I didn't, I didn't write this because I thought it was too takedowny. Um, but the the whole idea that there 's just broadly in psychology, that there are two things, it just completely makes us ignore, right? So there's system one and system two, right. there's reason and there's emotion there's um utilitarianism you know, and deontology yeah and it's it's so so fucking so binary, but like you know this has to be just uh some quirk of the way that our minds are made, not some feature of the universe or of experience or whatever
0: having said all that let 's look at to make this concrete, I do think there is a distinction we can make, and I think we can look back no farther than last episode to see an example of this. So one of the things I was saying was that what the character did, Tomas, is deeply shameful. And if you're the wife, I could understand it if she couldn't forgive him for this. If she just decided that right. this, this marriage isn't going to work anymore. Yoel thought that was insane. He thought that was the most irrational thing he had ever heard. He said it would be one thing, I mean, this is a classic sort of reasoned response, right? He said it would be one thing if avalanches were happening all the time <laughs> and this was evidence that he would act that way in the future, but this was just kind of a one-off. This was a one-time event and so to make any deep decisions on that basis is irrational, but if emotions are allowed into this process of determining what a plausible or a legitimate judgment is, then that makes it way more understandable and not nearly as crazy um, well, what, that what she you would have does- that reaction.
1: What you all fail to understand is that in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, uh, there were avalanches occurring at all times. So this is a good heuristic. That like, <laughs> right? You, if you if you don't save me from avalanches, let's get you must some be evolutionary psychology in here. <laughs> like Rob we were, we were all snow bunnies. Well, yeah, I mean, so, but I, you know, there's a way in which I almost think surely there's no disagreement. Don't call me sure. Um surely there's there's no real disagreement. What what you're saying, what Yoel is saying is... No, there is a huge disagreement. Well, what Yoel is saying is it's irrational. And you're not saying... That it's not irrational. You know what this reminds me of? The- no, this is—I am saying it's not
0: irrational. Like, that's the thing. Well, like, I don't define but- irrationality as, like, a cost-benefit analysis yes. for what the—
1: Right. Yeah. So that is the disagreement.
0: That the is disagreement
1: the- is that Yoel is is using a narrow definition of rationality. And, and, and I, with Aristotle and, and Frank- Nancy
0: Sherman, think that emotions are a part of that.
1: And a Bob Frank—sorry, a Robert Frank sort of pre-commitment device like— like sacrifice, sacrifice the immediate cost-benefit. Well, no, the, that the makes it person... sound too
0: rational, though.
1: No, no, but I don't mean psycho- that psychologically. You're doing a cost-benefit analysis. I'm just saying that the the reason that you have those emotions is that they, um, being the sort of person who has those emotions, would be the sort of person who would who would. Um,
0: I mean, maybe, maybe not. Like, but. I, I, I think that's a separate question.
1: It's the foot massage discussion from Pulp Fiction, right? It's the fucking foot massage where it's like, okay, right. look, he shouldn't, right. have thrown, he shouldn't have thrown him out of a three-story window. Like maybe there's a sense in which you could say he was irrational. There's another sense in which you say he's not irrational because you, nobody should putting his, his hands on his wife's feet in a familiar I give my fashion.
0: mother a foot massage.
1: <laughs> Wait, would you give me a foot massage? No, right. right. I don't it's know. My under- feet are kind of <laughs> hurting right now. <laughs> I could <Fuck> use... <laughs>
0: Look, just because I wouldn't get no man a foot massage, don't make it right for myself to throw Antoine off a building into a glass motherfucking house fucking up the way the nigga talks. That shit ain't right. A motherfucker do that shit to me, he better
1: paralyze my ass because I kill a motherfucker, you know what I'm saying? I ain't saying it's right, but you saying a foot massage don't mean nothing. I'm saying it does. And look, I've given a million ladies a million foot massages and they all meant something. We act like they don't, but they do. I mean, that's what's so fucking cool about it. There's a sensuous thing going on where, where you know you don't talk about it, but you know it. She knows it. Fucking Marcellus knew it, and Antoine should have fucking better known better.
0: No, that's exactly right. Like I'm on the side of. John Travolta. Right. That, that, that might have been an overreaction, but <laughs> like at the same time, you can understand it. You know, that's what I was saying about Ebba if she leaves
1: Tomas. Right. Uh, all I think he was – Joel was saying it's excessive and you were saying it's understandable. Like, I no, think I, just,
0: a- I think <laughs> that the disagreement was deeper. But anyway, I do think that once you allow emotions to enter the realm of what you think is irrational judgment so that it can't be determined by this cost-benefit – Ultimately, like what Yoel is talking about is that's either a utilitarian analysis or it's some sort of like egoist analysis. It's like what will lead to the best outcome? It's definitely consequentialist. What will lead to the best outcome in the future? And emotions can sometimes reject that. It's like I don't care what leads to the best outcome. You don't leave your kids That's that's unforgivable. And I can't like I don't respect you. And I'm ashamed. Like I that I have contempt for you now. That's it. We're
1: done. Right. But but there is I mean, there is a a danger of falling into the trap of of justifying almost any reaction so long as it is an emotional reaction that you can sort of empathize with. Right
0: but there there is that danger, and that's the that's the thing that fucks with this whole debate It's like a binary. It seems like well, then either you have to go very dry consequentialist or you have to go
1: well then as long as you feel it, it's right but no, this is why I think that what's unlocked when you look not just at character in a static time frame but uh, but as at character over a long period of time, you can actually say to yourself. Okay, do I want to be the sort of person who would be willing to forgive a kind of transgression like this? Like I can, I can very much understand, and you could probably understand this this well too. Um, yeah. When when you're first married, you think to yourself like, "Oh man, if my partner ever did this, like, it'd be over. It would just be over." And now you're just like, "Man, there's a lot of shit they could do that, like, it just wouldn't make sense for me to like end this relationship at this point." Like, right? There's you change. No. <laughs> you're, you're just like, um, Not that Jen
0: listens to this But I don't want her to think like Oh, I can like fuck around right now And it's right. cool you, you, So you're, uh, you're, you're I'm pretty, doing, I'm like you're, like you're calculating yeah. I'm calculating yeah. for the future it's very cute. So Yoel would be proud
1: <laughs> I feel like you're almost getting anti-Semitic now <laughs> Yoel What kind of a name is that? Hebe uh, but, uh, but so where what I think you're not granting is that over time in the context of a relationship, what is forgivable or unforgivable would really change. Yeah. No, no. That's definitely true. Yoel has just never been the sort of person to have human human emotions.
0: I don't <laughs> deny that emotions can completely lead you astray. They often do, right? I mean, I think – and I'm someone who can be somewhat emotional and I'm someone who my emotions have – have led him to do some dumbass shit that I don't think is right and that I have to do a lot of apologizing for afterwards.
1: But what are the criteria that you use to determine whether an emotion has led you astray? I guess this is something that I think that you consistently share. So this is no... <clears throat> I think this I'm is this gets to the crux
0: of like what Nancy Sherman's talking about and what Aristotle was talking about. That's the that's the big question. Admit that you're a emo- that the that something doesn't need to be justified by something independent of emotion. Like shed that idea. There's still a huge amount of room in terms of. Answering the question that you just asked, how do you know when an emotion is distorting and how do you know when an emotion is informative? And there's no principle to determine it. it, This is what you're developing. You're building your life towards trying to discover. This is how you fine-tune your life and your character to be able to make those distinctions. This is why you have friends. This is why you okay. have good relationships. But, but
1: you, I agree with you, but you are, you're, I want to resist what you're, the way in which you've retorted, which is that it's not reason because it's not about a cost benefit analysis and it's not about the categorical imperative. But there is a lot of what we might call reason in, for instance, what we mean by the thought that it's inconsistent of you to expect something of someone else but not of yourself, for instance. I think that has a lot to do with building character, and I'm comfortable sure, referring I agree. to reason as that, – that is the reason that I'm talking and about. And that's a big consideration, but it's not yeah. the
0: only consideration.
1: No, and it's not, it's not. But, it is, but it is often what is corrective because, because in the absence of that, I'm not sure how you would know whether your friends are being a good influence on you. Right. Like what you you're pointing to relationships, but you're not really saying what exactly you mean by by having a criteria that something is right or wrong. Like you're just
0: like you're bothered by duality and binary things. I'm bothered by this idea that. No, no, no. no, Just listen. I'm bothered by this idea that there has to be some sort of way that you could know for certain that that you've. Uh, alighted on the right answer, that there's some sort of further justification
1: for it. You don't. Okay. You'll never but now, know. But now you're putting words in my mouth. So all all I'm saying is that you agreed that there is a correct – that sometimes your emotions lead you astray. Yes. I don't it's, – it's fine if it's not 100, with 100 percent certainty that you know that they led you astray. All I want to know – and I'm neither claiming that it has to be either reason or something else. I'm just trying to get what you would consider evidence – that your emotion led you to do the wrong thing. Well, so my
0: friend says you're a dumbass. Like, what's wrong with you? I know you. Like, aunt- but it's more than just yay, yay or
1: or boo, right? I think that what you're pointing it's not to just, is just that yay have, or boo, right? We have friends like, who are wise and who actually yeah. might have good reasons right. to, that they communicate with us. You know, so that's one piece of evidence,
0: of course. Like, I, I the friend, like, you know, I might put up a fight with this person and say, yeah, but you don't understand. You know, like if I'm in a fight with my wife or something like that and I start like really justifying it and I start giving all these reasons why I'm right. And they just say like, just you're being a dick, you know, and I don't need them to necessarily know that they have like this list of reasons of why I'm being a dick.
1: And they probably don't. They can just sense that I'm being a dick. And yeah. I, okay, so I don't know that there's a substantive disagreement here. All I all I think is that that um, I'm I'm comfortable calling sort of, like if somebody says you're being a dick, well, why am I being a dick? They sort of reflectively point out to you, like, would you want, you know, like, do you really want to be that sort of person? Or do you think that if she did this to you or I know somebody that that happened to and they this happened? Like, they're just, that's yeah. in the context of a social relationship. Uh, to me, like, I'm those fine are, saying that those are corrective force of, like, for lack of a better term, reasons and not emotions. Um, and, fine. And, and that's how it works. Because right? you need
0: but to again, divide those two things. Into, no, but You again, need to
1: categorize I, I, them. No, I feel like you, every time I say reason, I feel like you think, like, beep, bleep, bloop, bloop, you know, like, let me, like, no, Algorithm. that's not what I mean. <laughs> I just, but that's— to that point, like I don't – I think that that if we were talking about the wrong belief, it would be obvious to us that that's how your wrong beliefs also get corrected, right? Like somebody within the context of a social relationship that you respect maybe for being intelligent would say – Dude, come on. Really? Like, are, are are you really telling me that you believe the world is flat or that there is no global warming? Right. And they would offer reasons and I would maybe listen to them more because I respect them in the context of a social relationship. We're not computers. Like, I 100 percent agree with you in that sense.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. like I, I think it's a good analogy in terms of I, I mean, I think we have this problem, not just in emotional like calibrating our emotional responses but in calibrating our epistemic judgments like how do you know about global warming we haven't mm-hmm. we haven't looked at the research right. Um,
1: right there's one way in which i'm very irrational about I, I think i read a paper once yeah because i was so pissed off at somebody for arguing arguing something um but like i gotta believe
0: it right people are so convinced that it's going on and yet usually there are at least two removes from anybody who does actual research On it. And so, probably what they've done is read people who have said that the scientific consensus is this, which is fine. I mean, I'm like one of those people, too but so we trust, in other words, we trust experts experts. and how do we know that this person is an expert and not a bullshitter? How do we know even if it's the majority of scientists that it's not? So we have ways of trying to do that, but in general, we have to trust experts in their fields about those fields like economics or something like that. Kind of like that. I think it's, it's a very similar analogous thing. There are people (laughs) who are experts in when I'm being a dick, you know, like, and
1: I totally agree. And those, and, and, and what it means, if my task isn't to form a true belief, right, about the state of the world, you know, empirical belief, um, right, where I would look to experts that I trust with some degree of humility, that they might be wrong. Um, but if it's my character that I'm trying to improve, the experts are people who know you and – the accrued wisdom of, you know, people who have experienced life in a way um, that you haven't. That that might get to this this point, um, even though we're skipping a lot in the chapter, of one of the things that you talk about with, with Nancy Sherman um, when it comes to making decisions about when to deploy our armed forces. There are two ways in which I can, I can really value human connection. Um, and I can say, as many people do say, if you're a senator and you're voting for war... It would be very good if you have a child, of, uh, a male child or right. any gender now, that, that you would be willing to deploy. But the other one is to have some people—this is a point you guys made in the chapter—have some people who have been through war, and they have that knowledge and the wisdom of what exactly the decision is that you're making. Yeah. Right. So when it comes to policy, much like when it comes to character, you can turn to others— whom you don't know for their sage advice because they've been through something that you've—it's very similar to what you've been through, and and there it's not it's not the dry application of a principle, it's the actual experience. paying attention to yeah. yeah somebody who's experienced as Aristotle would say like this just the thickness of the experience right in the he wouldn't say thickness but. But that idea, having connections to the real life person that you're talking about. So I was just
0: listening to a podcast with um, that, and I forget what the podcast name was, but it it had Sebastian Younger, who the author of The Perfect Storm, and who also. Oh, yeah. It was uh, one of the directors of Restrepo, the documentary about the Iraq War. And he was talking about this, just like Sherman said, that one of the things that has led to the mental stress and trauma and the inability to sort of come back into society is this disconnect between the civilians and the military. And he gave a very concrete Way of dealing with this, which I think would also address what you're talking about, which is that you have these events in the community where soldiers from the community who have been deployed come and they just tell you their experiences. They don't—they hmm. just—you go, and it's part of your duty as a citizen to go to these meetings and just to to listen to these people, both— To become better informed yourself, but also to for them so that they can feel like the that people know what they're doing and what their
1: sacrifices meant. And that's the thing that we've lost. Right. And, And I think that I don't know if it started in Vietnam, but but definitely very marked in Vietnam was the veteran coming home, not only having been sort of part of a of a of a war that was politically rejected but there is a way in which if any if any if you know any vietnam veterans like in general like they're super reluctant to ever talk about that shit and one of the things that people used to have was generation after generation would go to war yeah. and when they'd come back they could talk to their father right. like that you know it's like oh this shit happened to you this shit happened to me and now you have this kind
0: of cheerleading but it's bullshit cheerleading yeah you know it's the, like the, it's thank the, you for your service yeah. you know like board the airplane early but we don't really want to hear about it
1: or know about it. And sometimes I just really wonder like, and, and I, as you point out, like you're reluctant to ask, you've had veterans in class, you're reluctant to ask. I've, I've had similar experiences. You know, I, I tend, I don't think I have veterans in my, you know, in my big intro psych course, but I've definitely taught. um, Last summer there was a a man and part of this, adult university summer session, you know, he was in his probably late seventies, early eighties. And he had, um, I believe he was a veteran of, of Korea. And he just was at the stage in life where he was willing to open up about at at one point he started saying like, I, I was in charge of this many men and I lost this many. And he started telling in detail sort of the, the things. And, and I think it's probably harder to pull that out of somebody Who is fresh from from combat? Yeah, but unless we have those conversations and we ask and let them say no, if they want to say no, they can say no. But ask. That's what.
0: Yeah, that's what Sherman says, and I think she's absolutely right. (laughs) and like I think they can be very forthcoming, but they don't volunteer it. That's not no because people
1: don't want to. You know, like they don't. Who wants to hear my friend? My you know I saw my buddy's leg fly. You know. Um. His, yeah. Another yeah. thing that's
0: interesting is she said one way of bringing a lot of that stuff out is by showing works of fiction and works of art that, yeah. you know, from the Greek, you know, you show uh, up the plays of Sophocles, you know, about the Trojan War. You know, the, these things can bring it out in the way that, say, a philosophy and public affairs essay on the properties of a just war, maybe you maybe right. won't.
1: And this is, this is at the heart of, I think, this feeling that's been in sort of just brewing in me right now, which is that it doesn't even matter, I think, if you're a particularist, if you're a virtue theorist, if you're a utilitarian, all that is bullshit at a certain level because if you truly want to gain underst- sort of moral understanding, even just call it epistemology, moral epistemology about what, what is good and what is bad if 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 you even just at a singular act level want a rule, a universal rule to decide whether it is good or bad to go to war, you like have you need to talk to somebody who's done it right, right. and and this goes for every kind of judgment we make about other people's experience um, you need to talk you need to have the kinds of relationships, build the kinds of relationships where you're open to hearing your own behavior in a critical fashion but you're also opening to hearing people like really willing to listen to what it's like to be a black man in america um you know what it's like to be a woman in academia what it's like to be you know a A jew and a little person in in the housing market and you can't like all of that shit you sometimes you just don't even realize until you actually like talk about it a a jew yes very very much (laughs) Thank you for pointing that one.
0: (laughs) No, I, Um, I agree. I think that's the one thing that we, in all of our disagreements, that we probably agree about the most is that not only do you need that, I think everyone agrees about that on an abstract level, but I think you have to make an extra hard effort to make sure that you're doing that. And whether that's, you know, what is it like to be a black person, You know, in today's America, given some of the stuff that's been happening, like how that, you know, just imagine, you know, and and we're probably not going to talk about this, but like this is the day after the Minnesota incident and just, you know, and and I think about this. All the time. What's it like to be a Muslim person? What's it like to be? What's it like to be a conservative in academia? What's it like to be? uh, You know, an evangelical. What's it like to be? You know, like you have to think about and talk to those people, not just think about it. Yeah, it's not just think about it. You have to talk to people. You have to get like a real sense of
1: of how that is, and and be willing to actually run the risk of offending somebody by asking dumb questions sort of like when you asked me if i my
0: hair was covering up little horns <laughs> 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 you know like i could have been offended by that but i but i took that as your honest genuine attempt to try to figure out what it's like to be a jew
1: I'm, i i I unfortunately didn't even learn that stereotype (laughs) until I was way too enlightened. But it's one thing to gain knowledge, like by following the right Twitter accounts. And you can't judge the sincerity of somebody sort of uh, like who is posting on Facebook or or yelling on Twitter. But if you look into someone's eyes and you see their tears welling up as they're telling you how they've been treated, uh, you're like you're you're going to be hard pressed to, like, continue believing that. That they haven't been right in some way dealt a bad deal in life.
0: Let, can so. we talk? A, we haven't mentioned the Stoics at all, and I do yeah, want to yeah. do want to before we leave, which we which we need to. So one of the interesting things about Aristotle and the ways in which I think he very much diverges from modern approaches to ethics is, and, and Yoel's approach to ethics <laughs> is that he really does accept the existence of moral luck, you know, as part of the ethics. I mean, he just he just says explicitly that there are certain things you need to live a good life and to be a good person, and some of them, many of them, are completely out of your control. And, you know, if you don't have, like, including, like, just things about your physical appearance. Like, he took it probably farther than, I think, many would want to take it. But, you know, if you if you don't look a certain way, if your voice isn't deep enough, if you're a man, if you're, you know, like there's all sorts of obstacles that there's nothing you can do about that he thought were necessary for having eudaimony or eudaimonia. And that's something no, you, that the are is uh, Eudaimonia. <laughs> the Stoics were reacting against that, right? Like, that's the thing that, you know, if you look at the progression of ancient ethics, the Stoics, possibly because they were living historically in a different moment where they had less control, and certainly than Aristotle, who was an aristocrat, they tried to build the idea of a virtuous person that was immune to anything outside of their control like nothing could stop them from living a good and virtuous life and that is a very different view of morality and ethics and i think it's one that although people haven't really embraced the stoics exactly i think it's people have embraced that idea that there's something fundamentally wrong about moral
1: luck doesn't uh, sherman sort of point out that that it was really about dividing the world up into things you can control and things you can't and then just maybe it's just that they were dumping their ethical all of their ethical eggs into that controllable part no
0: because they thought you should take active steps to not become attached to things that are out of your control including things like your children you know right. they their idea their <laughs> their picture of a of a good life and of a virtuous person as someone who, if their kid dies, they're not going to feel
1: right. But that's because you have control over your reaction. It seems like, at least from what I was reading, which Sherman is saying, for example, the idea that there are some things that are within your control and some things that aren't, and you should only worry about the things that are under control, that speaks to them. They're stranded somewhere. You know, she's talking but, about
0: But this. they understood that that was only possible if you it, – it's not just like, okay, I can be just as attached to my kids and my life and my possessions and my dogs, and I can be just as attached to them as I want, and then – if something tragic happens, then i i know they like they understood that that was impossible, so they right just reject all of those they reject like, attachments. Well, no, but they don't just reject they urge people to diminish those attachments right mm-hmm. like to to act take active steps to not be attached
1: to things that are beyond your control so Hold on, can I just read what I? Uh, I don't know why I found this so hilarious because it doesn't say, in the context of this chapter, it doesn't sound hoity toity, but if I were to take it out of context, Tamler says, I'm the farthest thing from a Stoic scholar, but I recently read and lectured on Aurelius's meditations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not, I'm the farthest from a porn star, but my dick is huge. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> uh it's true
0: though (laughs) yeah but anyway like but but it's when i did that that i became sort of repelled by the stoic as you might imagine i became repelled by that stoic vision of it's a good thing to not be sad when your child dies you know but
1: you know yeah but like God damn it if it's not attempting like I feel the same way like I to me life is worth living when you have relationships and attachments and love and right. that but is what makes life good that is but but at the same time you know it's it's kind of like the conversation this is the one conversation where I think like more people have come out of the woodwork to to agree with you but on the <clears throat> antinatalism we had this discussion yeah. about about uh it, it just randomly about like sometimes I think it's not even worth having a dog because of the pain that I'll experience yeah, when they I lose was them, thinking right? exactly that, that when you yeah. said that, that's
0: what I totally don't identify with. Yeah.
1: Know? And sometimes I think like to, as a defense mechanism against feeling the pain that that stoicism, as Sherman points out, like it, that's why it's a really... Fucking great philosophy for someone in a POW camp,
0: yeah, right? Like, exactly. <laughs>
1: referring I, to James Stockdale, who spent w- the longest amount of time. And, yeah,
0: he was yeah. he was a prisoner of war and was very inspired during that time by the work of Ep- Epictetus.
1: I love, by the way, that uh, that. <laughs> When Sherman says, yeah, they kind of squeeze, squeeze it back, uh, like the attachment to emotional objects and commitments by talking about, quote unquote, preferred indifference. I know. Like they're not goods, they're not virtues. They're just things you'd want to have rather than not have in your life. Like all
0: things being equal, you would yeah. rather have that. It's <laughs> like I'm
1: I was Like I don't want my kid
0: to die of dysentery. It's like <laughs> HBO or something like that. Like yeah, all <laughs> things I could live without it, but you know, yeah, like don't
1: take don't take away my stories.
0: <laughs> no, I know, and that t- to me seems very kind of morally repellent. This idea that your kid would be a preferred indifferent. You're indifferent to it, but like forced to choose gun to my head. I'd rather (laughs) my daughter be alive than not be alive, you know, but that's the kind of thing that they, and I don't know to what extent it was sincere, but they wanted people to cultivate an immunity to like what you said with the dogs, like just don't get too attached to the dog so that you won't have to feel the grief and pain.
1: Well, I'm no Buddhist scholar, but I was meditating upon the other... No, um, but this is actually a tension I've always felt with, with as I understand it, and I really genuinely am the furthest from a Buddhist scholar. Um, but as I understand it, the there it seems to me to be a tension to, to be compassionate in the way that Buddha wants you to be and also be detached. It's, to me, it's like removing yourself From all human attachments removes your humanity in a way that would prevent you from being kind and spreading good shit.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it is an interesting tension in Buddhism. So, on the one hand, you really do have very similar to Stoicism, there's incredible commonalities, but you have this emphasis on loving kindness towards Mm -hmm. all the world. And on the other hand, you do have not as severe as the Stoics, but as sort of like discouraging getting attached to any particular thing that might be transient, that you could lose, you know, that will be temporary. I was just listening to another podcast called 10% Happier, which is on mindfulness meditation. And apparently mindfulness is something that is gaining a ton of momentum and steam within the military and there was a mm-hmm. they had a major general on talking yeah. about how to train soldiers in in, in this Lo-
1: loving kindness
0: no loving no no kindness. but that like you that's like the the, what they're trying to do and and the idea is to train paul wouldn't like this but empathy (laughs) and taking other people's perspective and the focus isn't as much i would say on detaching themselves because i don't know you might argue and sherman kind of argues this that soldiers that's not their problem is that their problem is more that they're feeling stuff too much. Maybe right, anger, that, rage, um, yeah. deprivation, missing their family. Like that's, that's the, cor- the corrective they need might be more in, in that direction.
1: Right. Whereas right, for yeah. us, it may not be, it may be, and making our relationships less watery. Well, but- and this is, and this is actually a point that, you know, cause I'm, I'm not so, I'm not as, Put off by this stoic philosophy, but I I think you are at a deep level. At a at a deep level, but but as a sort of given the context that you might find yourself in, it's not you you might you might say this is the appropriate way in which to structure my emotional life, and then at other times, no, right? And so so for every you know for everything, there is a time and a season for everything under the sun. So
0: but god forbid if something happened to my wife or daughter or even my dog and i just said no it's been i've been meditating and now i realize that you know i shouldn't be attached to those relationships and it's just part of life and i'm fine with that
1: you would think i was a bad person right Yeah, I guess. That's why that's why I find the tension between sort of like it's, it's very easy to malign the Stoics for saying like you're blunting yourself like you're you're being kind of a dick by not being sad about the loss. But there is a way in which and again, this might be my misunderstanding of Buddhism, but where they get a pass by saying like, oh, no, we promote loving kindness and detachment. And it's like, wait, so you can have them both. And, and, and maybe it's my Western duality. My no, no, no. But
0: even if I said, well, I'm not going to, it would be irrational for me to feel more sad about my dog dying than a stranger's dog dying. And so I'm no more sad about that. <laughs> in yeah, any way, would, they're both just... I would
1: think you were crazy,
0: in particular. R- right. <laughs> so here's a line. Here's why you like the Stoics. So this is a line from Aurelius's, who I lectured on, and... I'm not sure if I mentioned that. To look to no other guide, even for an instant, than reason alone. Right there, Dave's... Dave like, I, got a, I got a boner. So yeah, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. To remain ever the same in the face of severe pain, even after losing a child or during long illnesses. So I say is, like, look, I can get on board with not whining about being sick, um I although I didn't can. I don't live up to that but no where is my vicodin the idea of being ever the same in face of severe pain uh, after losing a child like that just seems not just impossible psychologically it just seems like immoral to me
1: i mean so there's a there's a balance there between what what maybe somebody means by saying mm-hmm. like i don't want to see your mess Versus, like, wow, just if your heart goes frozen and you're unable to form potential future bonds with other people, then that that would kind of suck. And part of it is just, I think, a, a, a descriptive fit with with your life, um, what like what you ought to do. But I, I do. Are there avalanches? Are there constantly a, happening? There are constant awesome avalanches. <laughs> it is unforgivable. It's totally unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> it's like tomorrow I might die because of your <laughs> fucking ass. <laughs> um, yeah. That would matter. I'll grant him that. <laughs> they were like avalanches <laughs> constantly. It's a to- in the savannah that was just ha- it just happened.
0: <laughs> hey everybody, it's Tamler here. I'm editing the podcast, and I wanted to quickly interrupt here to let you know that we recorded this discussion a couple weeks ago. So this was the day before the shootings in Dallas of the police officers, and then a little over a week later, the shootings in Baton Rouge. So our discussion obviously doesn't allude to those, but I wanted to include it because I think we both still stand by what we said, and at the end, it ties back to the topic of this episode I think just maybe last thing about anger which I think you could yeah better case for it being something we might want to banish but she said and I sort of agree with her that anger and this is a good maybe a good moment where I think a lot of people are saying this that if you're not angry at some of these police killings there's something wrong with you, and that anger is the the moral thing to feel about this. But this was something again that the Stoics discouraged.
1: And here is actually this is actually what I was thinking. So I'm a, I I have to t- to just take a moment and say this because um I've I've I think multiple times alluded to a TV show in which Dave Chappelle and Maya Angelou had a conversation. Yes, and one multiple. of the things one of the things that chappelle is asking my Angela was um he says when i look at the decades you know the 60 the decade of the 60s it was assassination after assassination he says i don't know how you can't be angry how, how you can't come out of that angry and she responds no she says you have to be angry and use your anger she says you you know you protest your anger you march your anger you shout your anger what you don't become is bitter Um, Because bitter, as she describes it very poetically, is it eats it's it's it preys upon the host. It will eat it will eat you. Right. But given what recently has been happening, but but most saliently this morning with and again maybe we'll learn facts that that change about the shooting. Regardless, Uh, this stuff has been happening. Regardless, by all accounts, like black men are getting shot by police officers. I feel as if as if black men in particular can't be angry and and i worry because the very the there is you mean it's unsafe to be angry or yeah i think that that this in this country the angry black man is has so often been used as a way to motivate sort of white fear and cause the very thing that we're seeing right now Sort of like just the image of the angry black man, like traditionally, um, you know, um, American racism, you know, has this flavor where we want our black men to be smiling, look like Sambos and do little jigs for us. And I fear that the that they've been taken away their ability to feel that anger that they ought to be feeling. I mean, and that if they do express it, they'll be maligned as he's dangerous. And what's left we, like, all I can think of is that everybody else has to be angry instead because at this point it's just going to increase the chances of of black men getting treated poorly in this country. You know, I, I don't know. Oh. In a lot
0: of these cases, and what's so infuriating sounds like this case in Minnesota, it's not like that man was angry. He was just no. black.
1: Jesus Christ. And it's like, you know, you, you listen, he, it seems like you did everything right. You know? Um, and there's, right?
0: I, there's literally a 0%
1: chance that
0: that would happen to me in that car. Of course,
1: of course. Yeah, I know. Right. It's, what is it like to, to have to, have to really worry about, you know? But there's like, two kind of
0: responses and it's interesting, like the, or not two. That's the binary thing. There's a whole myriad of responses, but there's one that would say look, just we have to figure out the most effective and efficient way of dealing with this problem and our, you know uh protesting and in the streets and breaking things and setting fires to cars and uh, like that is just going to be an obstacle and it'll actually, you know, endanger us. And it'll, and at the same time, you can also see how that kind of anger, how could you not feel that kind? We all should feel that kind of anger. I know. Especially, that's what I'm
1: saying. I feel like black men or black black people in America in particular have Sort of, it's been taken away. Less from... allow it's been taken yeah. away their their yeah. the, the the right that they have to march right now and not be called rioters and looters, but march angrily with anger in their face at what's going on. You know, I mean, it's it's a little different because who knows you know it's it's a big problem to know who to be angry at except for maybe the specific police officers but just to be angry at society and express it without actually getting another notch against you like a lot
0: of things and like a lot of the horrible things in society right now it's so depersonalized as to you don't know who to get angry at it's part of this big long process of uh, like police training and the like increased militarization of the police and and yeah. you know like you could get mad at all police but then there's like really good police out there who are yeah. just trying to do their best and who are trying to meet with the community and who and so it's it i i, I yeah
1: right it. most I certainly there are like you know a dozen if not more causes for all of the stuff that that would would lead to this incident and so when it's diluted you know it's really hard there was no burning cross or whatever but yeah. but
0: again we don't we shouldn't talk about this but like yeah. you can imagine that this this minnesota police officer is not a racist in the sense of like he's but the way he's been trained the way he's just been socialized in mm-hmm. the country and in the in the academy led f- to this to happen you can take out your anger on this guy which is you know totally understandable and and absolutely but it's a little like Tomas in the running away from the avalanche it, it's, it's yeah. not like he made a con- I'm sure that he would take
1: it back
0: a million times if he, he if, but, if he could.
1: But on your arguments, it also seems okay to call it unforgivable, right? Yeah, I, absolutely. Been, yeah. Like if you're the if you're, yeah. I mean, I would feel this,
0: and, and yep, and, like I. And, and if you were him, would you would you want to take the sort of rational well this was not something i wanted to do and i've been you know like no that's you that's the dichotomy hard to forgive yourself
1: right and and the dichotomy of like either say like i fear the rhetoric of he's not racist and then and then people saying well like he shot an unarmed black man he's racist like by definition the complexity of the situation just be does not allow for that to be a fruitful conversation. Talk about moral luck. It's moral luck to not
0: be one of those cops sometimes in this but that doesn't yeah. mean it's again, forgivable. Anyway,
1: again, I don't know about the details of yeah, this. Yeah, we one. don't know like, if, whether he followed protocol or whatever. But just who, to bring what? this back first
0: full circle, you would think that one of the things that you would want to do in an academy is train officers so that they can make these split second decisions in the right way rather than the wrong way. And this was actually interesting. This is what the the podcast on the military says that mindfulness helps you do is it makes you calibrate your reaction in the proper way and not that you would say that this was an instinctive reaction rather than one that, you know, really expressed what I wanted to do at the, at the moment. And There's an interesting convergence between what Nancy Sherman was saying. She thought that's what Aristotle is training people to do, is to have your emotions be finely tuned so that even in a highly stressed situation like that, you can make the right decision. And it's also what Zimbardo in the interview that I did with him was saying that he's trying to train people to do. is, And he even uses the expression moral street smarts. It's like you train people to be capable of reacting to all sorts of different situations. So the situations don't determine how they act. And so even though situationism is often painted binarily as being a, you know, like the critique of virtue ethics, they both sort of alight on that same idea of it's really hard to get a person to be able to know what to do and when it's you know like right. if it's that, if it's a high stress high highly unusual that, that 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 the goal of training is to get people to that point where they can do
1: yeah that. and the burden is the burden is on you like it's higher for you to you know we we hold firefighters to a higher standard about running into burning buildings, and we need to take it as seriously. Um, in these cases. So yeah, just to give a little like plug for, for baby mama, whose name is Judith Anderson. Um, she is currently working on just this. She's just received a couple of grants, um, that are all about, like, it's, it's not, it's not specifically about a racial component, but it's about, she's been working with, with, uh, police officers and SWAT teams measuring their physiological responses when they're going through training. And even in these simulated training, like, the stress response is off the chart, right? And when yeah. you have that stress response, you're going to make the kinds of mistakes that that you know are easy to make. So in our society, it's just easy to perceive, you know, a black man holding a wallet as one holding a gun because of all kinds of racist shit um, that may or may not have anything to do with your personal views, but just because that's what that's how America is. That's how we've been and so yeah and so if you focus then on the goal of reducing that crazy stress response, then hopefully other the other aspects of their training kick in more easily and um, so right yeah and that's so part of building a good character yeah and that all happens when you think about morality as persons over time yeah. right it's you can't judge a person in this static fashion or an act in a static fashion it really is about about are you are you taking steps to make your character better? Um, different people will have different burdens on them in terms of what, what we expect of their character, right? If you're father, we expect you to not run away. <laughs> the avalanche missed. Yeah. The avalanche missed. Right. It's like, what can I, just
0: like I was saying, like, what can I do, even though I didn't do shit about it, but like, what can I do to make sure that should something like that happen, I don't react like Tomas. That. It's what people training soldiers and policemen to yeah. do because it's it's not it's not something that you can do on your own. It is something that requires a ton of training and like I think Aristotle is totally right. A lot of external factors have to be in place for this to be even possible.
1: Right. So for me and you, like the natural sort of associations we have um, that are racist, you know, they often at, at worst will lead us to lock our doors at night right um but when when somebody else's life right when somebody else's life is is in your hand then better work on that shit
0: but also better have like institutions in place institutions that 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 will help you train people to work on that stuff because it's too much to ask people to just develop that on their own
1: nope and i I don't want to take away like you there should be anger It doesn't need to be at an individual. You could just. There should be room for the voice of anger just to get this motivated, right? Calibrated anger. How that'll happen, Uh, we will see.
0: All right. Well, join us next time. That got a little serious towards the end, but um, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. brain
1: you're a very bad
0: man i'm a very good man just a very bad wizard